geeks. I'm not going to um, try and figure out episode numbers now because we're we're far beyond that. But we're still at episode zero point something. We're still beta. But uh, welcome to the Behind the Geeks. I am here with Pete Matheson, Scott Riley, and Richard Tubb, the legends that they are. And uh, tonight, or today, or this morning, or whatever it happens to be, wherever you are in the world, uh, we didn't have a topic. So we're going to have a bit of a generic AMA on this one and probably just see where it goes. And as you've probably seen with the four of us, we can go down some wild and fancy um, segues into all sorts of different topics on this show. So uh, we were just going to see where this one goes. However, if you are in the chat... Uh, and you're watching this thing and you've got something that you'd like to hear us debate or talk about or brainstorm through or offer our advice and wisdom on or tell you about how we did something in that particular topic and made a horrible mistake in it, then throw it inside the chat box and um, and we are open for open for business today. Chris Tim's already put one in here. Chris. <laughs> Is the opposite of opposite the same or opposite? <laughs> well, I'm going to leave that up, up to you three to, to answer because I will get it wrong. Um, and does a staircase go up or down? Um, thank I'm surprised you, no one asked, are there more doors or windows in the world? Because that's, uh, that's the one that's going around at the minute. Are there more oh, doors it? or windows? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously windows. One of the, yeah. my, I heard my daughters the other day having the conversation about um, the chicken or egg, what came first. And it's funny oh, seeing yeah. six and eight-year-olds trying to debate how it happened in there. Wanna, yeah, that is the more sense. Then who laid the egg? Yeah, correct. Probably makes more sense than us adults with the way their reasoning is. Uh, but anyway, we've got no topic for tonight. As I said, so Pete, you had a topic opener that you were going to start with that one of your coaching clients, one of your one-on-one coaching clients, um, asked you about overnight, and it seemed to be a great topic that we could probably dive into for an entire hour. But do you want to throw it up, and we can? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is going to save me some work because I don't have to reply to him. I can just send him a link to the video. Send him the link. So, <laughs> so the question was: he's got, so he's got some candidates he wants to do some interviews with. Do you have an interview questionnaire, a process, or whatever you can do to help me share to help me with that? So yeah, how do you interview somebody, basically? Ooh. Love that question. And whenever I get asked that question, I, I defer. I just go, I tell them to go straight to the book Who by Jeff Smart and read that and then come back to me with any further questions. And um, the reason being, and no one has ever come back to me with any further questions. They've all come back and said, holy crap, I wish I read that earlier in my life. But it's, it's this amazing book. If you haven't heard of it, it's a book called Who, just W-H-O by Jeff Smart. And it's um, full of practical, it's not a, a pie in the sky kind of 20,000 foot view thing. It's a really practical book around how to hire and retain A players. And, it, and it's got a bunch of amazing interview questions in there to help you really extract what you really need, want to get out of people during an interview process. And so so I always just defer people to that. I, I use it inside. There you go. That's the one that Pete's sharing on his screen there, if I can probably maximize your screen. That's the one there. Awesome, awesome book. It's pretty easy to get through as well. It's not a big, long reader. It's a, a quite an easy one. And as I said, it's because it's full of practical help and, and interview questions and everything, you can literally pull everything out of it and start using it. And so so my advice is just go and read that book. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have got some a bunch more wisdom that you can share and add, but I'm taking the lazy route for me. It's all about personality for me, I think. So my uh, interview questions would be more based on whether the person is a good fit for, uh, for me and for the team that they're going to work with more than the technical skills. I could teach a monkey how to do Active Directory with all due respect to the MCSEs and everything else in the audience. And look at Scott's face. He's like, how dare you besmirch the MCSE? But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you hire for attitudes first, uh, technical skills, you know, they can always come uh, along. And I think we get too... Um, you know, looking at the way the, the, the question was worded there, I think it's like, is there a technical test or is there something along those lines? Uh, really, that wouldn't have been the biggest concern to me. So I would use things like disc profiles uh, to make sure that the person that I'm seeing turning up for the interview is the actual person. Uh, because we can easily put a mask on, can't we, for an interview and make ourselves, yeah, I'm a team player. I love working with people. I love customer service. And then your disc profile says, yeah, you can do that, but it extracts an awful lot of energy uh, from you when your natural style is you want to sit in a basement wearing Metallica t-shirt and grunting at a computer you know those are two different so, types of people that question you for you Richard then so on the back of that would you send them the disc profile questionnaire so you kind of read through the CV go okay they're good you send that to them before they come in for an interview then 
we, we used all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful uh, tips. So um, we use something called a tripwire uh, as well in the lead up to that. So um, we would say if we were hiring for, say, an MCP, and I picked this tip up from Carl Palachuk in the US, uh, he would say, uh, you know, send a covering letter and include a link to your Microsoft transcription um, uh, within the letter. And um, you would be shocked at the number of people who just didn't read and follow that instruction. So they'd say, yeah, I'm an MCP. That's not what we asked. And so one of the ways that we've disqualified people really early on with that small tripwire is, are you able to actually read and follow instructions as opposed to, you know, oh, this is what I think it, uh, I think it says. Yeah. So we, we did things like that, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, we, we do that quite a lot on um, like online applications when you're hiring remote people of like, if you've read this far, include the word blue in the, the beginning of your, <laughs> your your email to us. Then you know they've actually... And shall I tell you where that... Just as a side note, because people think um, that that idea, that concept of tripwires, people aren't familiar where it really came from. And they think it came from rock bands being divas. So, um, uh, you know, when they said, oh, you've got to have brown M&Ms, no blue M&Ms or something in the dressing room. <laughs> There's an actual story behind that. Um, and it goes back to Van Halen, one of the first touring yeah, yeah. bands who had these big displays and everything. And Van Halen basically said, yeah, we don't want, I think it was no blue M&Ms in the dressing room. They didn't do that because they were a bunch of divas. What they were doing is putting on huge pyrotechnic shows with huge stages, and they had big operating systems for how the different venues had to put stuff together. Now, what they were doing is they were turning up at places and things weren't getting done. So they put in a tripwire, which was, we don't want any blue M&Ms. So if they got to the dressing room, and they saw blue and MMs. They were like, "What else haven't you done correctly?" So it wasn't that they, they were being like rock stars too. and stuff. So yeah, I heard they, they canceled concerts um, because yeah, of because their their feeling was if the blue M and Ms were there, what else was missed out? Yeah. And people could die because they've got pyro, they've got stages that could fall. So they were like, "Well, out." But they've over the years they've got the reputation for just being uh, divas on that. Divas, but that's yeah. where the concept of the trip wire came from. Mariah Carey level divas. <laughs> Scott, how about, how about your real shame? Because I've, I've adapted. Mm. Yeah, no, just yeah, I've uh, I've adapted that as my rider. So if people want me to come and talk at their events, I ask for a bowl of blue peeled M and M's, and I'll know if they weren't blue before you peeled them. Um, but no, so interesting. So obviously, um, I mean, I've I've made some horrendous mistakes in in hiring people. Um, not in this business, uh, but in previous businesses. <laughs> not, none currently still working for um, you then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. None of those mistakes are still here. You know who you are. <laughs> no, <laughs> that sounds awful. Um, no, I've I've made some terrible mistakes in in you know going with my gut, you know, in 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 the hiring process or taking other people's opinion when my gut was screaming at me saying, I really don't think this is going to be a good cultural fit. And it's, it's always been about the culture and the, the personality and the attitude, I think, as you said, Richard, rather than the aptitude, you know, we can teach skills. Um, but it's that, it's that get up and go. And, you know, most recently when we hired an apprentice in the business, let's be honest, you're hiring an apprentice that they're, they're fresh out of um, college or university. They don't really have any practical skills. Their CV says, hey, I was, you know, working as uh, a waitress in a cocktail bar when I met you. Um, you know, they, they don't have anything that is relevant to, to IT uh, in our case, to marketing specifically. Um, but what we did was we hired on someone who, you know, we felt had demonstrated just in their life experience some real go-getter, you know, independent thought. Um, and, and the way that came down really simply was we, we got down to two final candidates, right, on an apprentice. And, and, and again, you're going at uh, attitude, not aptitude. And we had one person who kind of lived locally to us, lived with their parents, hadn't, you know, left school or done anything yet. They were just still, you know, with their folks and, and didn't really know what they wanted to do. We had another person who'd sort of moved away from home a long way to go to university. They then moved from there a long way to our city here in Leeds, and they were looking to start off their career. And I was like, well, you know, the, the second person kind of shows me more independence, more kind of go-gettery attitude. So that's what we're going to go for. Um, and that's that's literally all we had at that stage was just that difference of, of attitude. 
And boy, was that the right decision because the person that we got has been absolutely amazing at everything that they've done with our digital marketing. And we've taught the skills, but what we couldn't teach was that amazing work ethic that she's brought in every single day. And then we've just been blown away by someone. We just thought, well, this is going to take months and months to get someone up to speed who's never really been in the workforce, doesn't know anything about IT, doesn't know much about digital marketing. Oof, this is going to be a slog. But like within a couple of months, <laughs> we, we turned a huge corner. Uh, we started insourcing things that we were previously outsourcing. It, it was amazing. But that was all around attitude, not aptitude, definitely. Yeah, I, th- I think just to add to that, there was one, there's actually a post I put out recently about hiring a best mate. And I think when you're first starting out, when you're hiring like your first few people, um, if you can have a pool of kind of people that maybe ex-colleagues you've worked with, you you know their limitations and you know what they're capable of. There is obviously, if you're hiring strangers, which everyone is to start off with, you're, you like Richard said, you're trying to second guess and figure out if they're actually the person they say they are when they're in the interview. Are they actually always that positive? Are they actually always that, that keen to learn and those kind of things? Um but I always think that if you can hire somebody that you know because you previously worked with them or you just know them very, very well, then at least you know what you're working with. You know what they're capable of. You can throw them at something and know exactly kind of where their limitations are. And that's a really good place to get started because you don't have to second guess. and You don't run the risk of making that accidental first hire or somebody you don't, you don't know. They turn out to be somebody, you know, they, they didn't appear to be in the interview. You made a massive mistake. You've wasted a month or two months. Now you've got to get rid of them. Now you've got to go through the hiring process again. So it saves that whole mess, like that, just the initial mess. However, when you do flip over to not hiring someone you know to a complete stranger, um, just, I guess, reinforcing what everyone else has said, just hire based on personality. Like you, you can't build, I mean, you can build personality, but it's very, very difficult to <laughs> takes a um, long time like, attitudes I, I noticed a big change when we um you know if, if you when you interview somebody take them out of like the office environment and go just like go to a bar or a pub or just yeah, go yeah. meet them yeah. in a very relaxed situation chat to them openly like ask about their hobbies like what they're into you know what what's their, their kind of progress been in life so far their experiences just kind of find out what kind of person they are rather than the job person that they, they you kind of need them to be because actually you need to be Firstly, a nice person that's going to do good work. And then secondly, like everyone else has said, you can teach them the techie stuff after. Everyone can learn that stuff. You throw them on a few training courses. Um, Yes, there'll be some skilling up time, but it is more important you get the right person that's going to be a good fit for like you as a company. Um, So I guess on that topic, a quick one just to ask off the back of this. Should you, when you're hiring for a technical person, should you give them a questionnaire, like a, a, a test? Has anyone done that? I have a few times. Um, yeah. There's a few. Back then, there wasn't any good ones out there. That, so you had to go and build your own. Um, one of the ones that what, and so it was a bit of a pain to go and build your own. I just did a couple of basic things in there. Like I'd ask a couple of very specific questions and I'd ask them to try and just um, explain to me how they would troubleshoot the problem. And it just gave me a, a bit of insight into their troubleshooting. But what I saw done really well at an MSP that I did some work with was um, they – they came up, or they found one of their most curly problems that they had on their help desk once from one of their senior engineers. Um, that was a, that always was a DNS issue, but um, because every issue was DNS. But they they then had these big A whatever it was like big things like this printed out with a network map of that particular um, client, and um, and then well, they sat went inside the in person interview. So they, this was people that ended up getting to the in person interview stage. They would sit with them and say, okay, let's do a bit of a, a role play here. Um, Picture this is just a, a fictitious client, and here's the problem. We want you to let, let's go through a bit of troubleshooting here, so you can we can see where you, you get to. The problem, sorry, it wasn't DNS. The problem was um, that the default gateway had disappeared on the IP address of the server. Um, oh, it, yeah. it had gone off, which you probably saw on all the SBS boxes, old SBS. That, boxes. that old bug that happened for like two years straight that they didn't <laughs> they never cleaned up, and it was that bug. And so they they kind of workshopped that in a t- and the test was with the people uh, on the in the in person interviews to see how they would troubleshoot that particular thing, and I think only one or two people troubleshooted it and got it properly. Um, Pete's got to run; he's got a delivery out there. Um, he's um he's probably got another new phone turning up to review. He seems to have a new phone to review on the YouTube channel every three minutes, but that worked really well. And and it's like to me that was the the ultimate of sitting down and seeing someone's troubleshooting skills in action while you're sitting there behind, beside them and they they were allowed to ask you questions and you were the the person that knew the problem but you were saying they, they were saying okay can you try pinging this can you try doing that can you try 
NS Lookup? Can you do all of these different things? And just watching them through that process was really, really eye-opening. That was further down the hiring funnel, though. That was obviously done in person when for all the people that had made it past the top of the funnel. But I have seen, um, I, as I said, I used a couple of, um, what you call them, like form-based things that asked very specific questions, but nothing as detailed as some of the tools that are out there now that actually are specific for this. I think you, you guys might have seen them more than me, Scott. I don't know if you've used any of those those um, technical aptitude question skills tests that you can go and use inside the hiring process. Now, we never got to use them because they didn't exist back when I had my MSP, but um, I've seen a few of them. I don't, I don't think I've ever used them. No, not not currently and not not in previous businesses. Right. I think, like as Pete said, I've, I've been lucky enough, apart from our main apprentice, to hire mates, you know, hire yeah, right. you know, former yeah. employees. So you know they know they are, yeah. already. But, very similar process to what you talked about, though, when we were hiring pre-sales in our in our bigger MSP, um, is we would send out a scenario to them right. and say, hey, yeah. this is the client, this is the scenario, this is the kind of product and service we want to do. Out. Could you just do a presentation? Because I think a lot of times, well, I've seen this as well, it's sneaky where they put... Um, they'll put in the interview question like a problem that they're actually having and see if they can basically crowdsource an answer. <laughs> and right. so there's no job. They're just crowdsourcing an answer. Like, wow. Oh, right. um, but for our pre-sale scenario, it was basically like, here's, here's the client. You know, what would you recommend? There are no wrong answers, but come in, do a basic presentation for like 10 minutes of what you think the solution would be, what it would look like, uh, and be prepared to field questions. And we didn't care. I don't care what technology you use to answer the challenge. Just as long as you can explain your reasoning and your thinking, we can have a good you know, chat about it. Made perfect sense to me. It's the thought process you want to see rather than anything else. You want to see how they how they attack these problems and, and challenges. Yeah. So I think we've got a lot of questions that have oh, come yeah. through. There's some awesome ones. Like, uh, Pete, are, your, are your plants fake, Pete? We'll get through that one. Most important. <laughs> no, they're all. not. I think we beat up. They're real. Thank they're you. not fake. Um, my favorite other question just came into me on WhatsApp. That is, what's your favorite hairy dog? Mine, mine's the dog <laughs> off the Jewelbox advert. Off the what? I, I don't, the Dulux paint advert. It's, oh, right. it, maybe it's a UK thing, but I, I, I don't know what that dog's yeah. called. I know it's a big hairy dog. Right. Any, anyone else with big hairy dogs? No, we're gonna we're gonna short fat no hair dog. Uh, oh. We can't help. <laughs> what of our team, uh, Claire Jenks? Her dog Max regularly gets involved in like webinars and video calls and stuff like that. Who uh, I think he's actually listed on her team page as well. So I, don't, I wouldn't call him a big hairy dog, but he's a he's a hairy dog. Yeah. We're answering the tough questions here tonight. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this morning. Yeah. What about the where are MSPs in their evolution to MSSPs? Now we talked about this two weeks one? ago, I think. Yeah. Trying yeah. to spot that one. There's another question very similar, isn't there? That is um forget where is I think that's the first one, is that do you do you think uh, cybersecurity is now an MSP fundamental? Yeah, I would answer absolutely yes to that at this point. However, with the caveat that and this probably answers both of those questions there. Obviously, cybersecurity is an absolute fundamental because your clients will just expect it, whether you are offering it as a service or not. That's always been the deal with managed services. Back in when the day when Nigel and I were doing it, it was like anything with a plug, you've got to basically look after as a managed service provider, whether it's in your contract or not. Uh, going forward to today, it's like anything uh, electronic, basically, anything cybersecurity uh, related, people are going to expect you to look after that. Now, what I would say is I don't believe that every MSP should become cybersecurity specialists sure. because yeah. that's one of those things, you know, in the same way that we've got Linux specialists and, and whatever else. However, everybody should have relationships with companies and with partners who can help them with incident response and things of that nature. So, you know, if I was to start an MSP again tomorrow, I would partner up with somebody like Uptime Solutions for their security operations center, or I would build a relationship with a security specialist so that we could provide the everyday support, everyday cybersecurity uh, that is expected. But when it hits the fan, when something comes in there, we can immediately call on somebody and say, jump in there, take a look at what's going on, because this is beyond our level of knowledge. So. Yeah, I think you you have to partner out for that stuff. If if you if you're not at a scale where you can build it internally, because it is a real skill set, you know, having having that whole security operation center. And don't get me wrong, again, 
when we talked about this the other week, you know, we had a security operations center in our big MSP, but it was basically a team that looked after firewalls. Okay. When it was the firewall team, it became the security operations center because it was more saleable as a, you know, as a, an exit value for the business to call it a SOC. In reality, it was a firewall management team. There was no, you know, proactive pen testing. There was no reaction stuff going on. Eventually, we would make another acquisition, which brought in Alien Vault. And so we had that capability yeah. to do, you know, seam practices. But again, it was all manual. It was a lot of people. Um, and I just think it's, it's again, it's buy or build. You can, you can partner up for these things. And there are people who are absolute experts who'll do it better, faster, and cheaper than you ever can for the number of opportunities that you'll get with it. But um, I think someone else asked one of the other questions, which is like, what do you do when you run out of skills and there's been a breach in a client? I would have these relationships in place. It's, it's you know, the same for us. We are very good at what we do, but for everything else, we have partners, we have teams that we can turn to. Exactly. Sorry, on, on that specific question of what you do when you run out of skills, um, particularly on like a breach as well, um, which the, is it Huntress? There's quite a few um, providers now that just say, just, just contact us, we'll help right. you, yeah, you yeah. Know, we'll, we'll walk through it. I, I don't know if there are any others. I was at the network group yesterday and Andy O'Neill, who is a part of Datto, we gave a, a, a great presentation on um, incidents um, plans, security incident plans and things and uh, going through what MSPs can do. But if you think uh, Datto have got like one of the top um, CISOs in the industry and Ryan Weeks and um, yeah. so uh, vendors would be the first people that I turn to and say, the roof is falling in. How can you help us with this? Because yeah. they have got world-class people. The great thing about the vendor community as well, from that perspective is they all work together now. So like, um, you know, Datto speak with, you know, anyway, they all work together basically so they can pull their knowledge and do it. So yeah. again, another yeah. argument for like using your vendors as partners, not just, you know, uh, suppliers. One um, one thing to not forget about is also your cyber insurance uh, coverage because most cyber insurance coverages nowadays also have incident response in there and often they, they word their policies that if you don't use their incident response, then the, the claim is null and void and you'll get no coverage in there. Correct, so, yeah. so don't forget that if you've got coverage in there, get on and you do have an incident, you don't have the skills in team or whatever, even if you do have the skills in team, you still need to be getting on the call to your insurance coverage just to letting them know an incident's happened. And often out here in Australia, they, they use some of the, like the, the quality of their incidents teams is up for debate because I think there's, as you guys mentioned, like the, the incident teams that are at some of the big vendors are probably far better than the incident team cyber uh, insurance companies are throwing at things. But they, they also have access to all the legal and the PR and everything else on call as well so that you can handle all of that stuff that, that often happens in a breach. Um, and so, so just don't forget to use them when you're there as well. If you do have some sort of incident, get your insurance involved as soon as you possibly can in there before you, before you void it accidentally. Should we grab um, Jason's yep. question from earlier about transitioning from an MSP to, um, sorry, to a full, full MSP? So how to best transition sure. to fully MSP when you have 80% of clients as casual but only worth 20% of the revenue? How would you deal with that? I'm just reading it now. I so my, the process that I went through in that place. Yeah. yeah. yeah so we, uh, we use what, what I uh, commonly call now the bucket system where basically we put uh, each of our clients, we just evaluated them and put them in one of three buckets. So the A-list clients are the ones that um, always listen to your advice, um, you know, never haggle with you on price. The phone rings and you see their name come up in the DDI and you're like, yeah, great. I want to speak to that person. We spoke to them, first of all, and we prioritized them. We had a conversation, said we were moving across to managed services and, and great. And then the majority of MSPs, the majority of their customers were probably in that B bucket where they pay most of the most of the time they're a pleasure to work with and there's no problem. We actually left them until last. And what we did was go after the C bucket. The C's. Yeah. Oh, C's. The C's. Those are the ones who come and do the complete opposite thing. Those are the people that you give them a quote and they say, we can get a 6P cheaper from eBuyer. And those are the people that basically they always pay late, yet they're the first people who are on the telephone to you to ask for stuff. These are the people the MSP's watching, if you get a telephone call from them, their name or number comes up on the DDI and you want to quit being an MSP and go and open a fishing tackle. <laughs> These are the people, <laughs> the, the C-bucket clients. Now, interestingly, we went to the C-bucket clients uh, next after the A-bucket uh, because the Bs, you know, most of them are going to come on board. But the C-bucket clients, we wanted to eliminate as many of those as possible. We were quite aggressive with them. So we said, look, we're moving to this thing. We didn't call it managed services. 
we don't think it's going to be a good fit for you because you don't value IT. I said, you're right. Okay, who can we go to? Right, go to Joe's Fish and Tackle and Laptop Repair Store down the road. He'll look after you. But interestingly, some of the Sea Bucket clients said, IT's, it, it's important to us. We can do that. Yeah, we've got a budget for IT. And they actually moved from being a C-list client, a C-bucket client, to being a B or an A client in some instances. So I hope that answers from my perspective. That's what we did when we were transitioning to managed services. And we moved really quickly on that. The, the benefit of that as well is that you you understand all of the objections with the C or you hear all of the objections from all the C clients and you get very good at answering them before you get to the B clients. And so you, you sound very knowledgeable when you get to the B clients because you're um you're completely skilled up on answering all those crazy objections that come through. Brilliant. And you've got nothing to lose, right? If that if that bulk is worth 20% of your revenue, right. you, you have very little to lose other than yeah. setting really good expectations, putting a better price plan in place. And if they like it and they want to fall into the, the expectations and the, the service level agreements and the price, cool. Yeah, that's yeah. really good. And if they don't, then like we talked about last week, you can recommend them to another local provider who's maybe a smaller shop that is happy to take on more, you know, maybe lower paying, more high maintenance clients who just need that extra touch and feel and, and they don't work for you. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's a great plan. Yep. Carl yeah. Palachuk's book, Managed Services in a Month, has got a bit of a, a chapter in, in handling that transi- tra- transition as well. So if you haven't read that lately, Jason, it might be worth going and grabbing a copy of that again and, and having a look in it. Completely agree. What other questions have we got? In here, ben what's Schneider. wrong with wearing a Metallica shirt and shouting yeah. at the screen? Nothing. For anybody not watching Nothing. closely, every week I try to offend the audience in the most optimal amount of time, and I think I managed it in a. <laughs> you, offended, you offended me in, four, on that one. Minutes fifty this week, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're good for IT. Um, I've got one of my daughters up here working beside me, wearing, who, who sometimes <laughs> wears Metallica shirts, but she's not wearing one at the moment. I love Metallica, uh, by the Carl way. Carl Frankham. Uh, so Carl asks, he's been following Pete for a while and hasn't seen this answer before. What was one of the main reasons for you selling your MSP outside of money? Uh, so what are the more of the personal drivers that kind of led you to that decision? Um, yeah, it was funny. Mark. For, for us, it was a case that we'd been running our MSP for it was like eight years or so. And we'd we'd been doing well, like everything's been going up. We're always, you know, you have your rocky periods, and your ups and downs, but everything generally year on year has been going upwards. And the timing for us was just, we've, you know, our kids were four and one or two at the time, I think. So it was just quite a good timing of, well, hey, if we sold up now, we can have a good few years to relax, spend some time with the kids. We've always been doing well as a company. So chances are a recession might happen sometime soon. And, you know, hey, I'd rather not go through that just for whatever reason. So um, it, it was just a good time, I think, for us. And, and we never had... Like from from a financial point of view, we never had that number of like, we're going to hit a million and then we're going to sell or I want five million for my company. But what we did is for whatever reason, we just sat down one night and went, well, actually, how much would it take for us to for us to like leave? Like We need to pay off our mortgage, have some time off with the kids and you know, some savings and investments, whatever it's going to be. And we, we, we came up with a number and then we went out to find if anyone will pay the number. And then all the offers came above the number we'd come up with. So we're like, <laughs> OK. We're selling them because that's above the number that we set. <laughs> we actually sold it through the tech tribe through through Nigel's um, forums uh, on an, like an anonymous post. So th- there was many reasons for it. it. It wasn't really geared towards money. Of course, money is the thing that you kind of was the that kind of gate that you open up. Go okay, we've we've ticked the money box now. So let's go down the process. But for us, the reasons were it was just the right time for us. I just I, and I think in all honesty, I lost the passion. I, yeah. I didn't wake up every day like excited right. to do what I was right. doing anymore. Um, and I just couldn't see myself doing it for another 20 years until like traditional retirement. So I was like, well, if, and I'm very much like, if, if I know I'm not going to do something, then that, that's it. Let's just stop it there, move on to something else. And and now I'm loving what I'm doing. Like I love this stuff. I love all the, um, the coaching and the cool stuff I'm doing. I love all the YouTube stuff I'm doing. Like I, I love waking up and doing that every single morning. Now it's, it's fantastic. So uh, yeah, quality of life. There's a lot to be yep. said of quality of life. Awesome. And when you run an MSP, you don't get much of a quality of life. Yeah. Sorry, but with the, like the nine to five <laughs> and then it ends to like midnight and, and you know, lots of my coaching clients, I'm still chatting to them late in the evening when they're, they're doing on-call things and being called out by clients. There, there is a, um, it, it's tough to get a good quality of like balance of life when you're running an MSP. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Long answer. 
<laughs> That's cool. No, um, I, um, Chris Tim says he thinks uh, Tobe is a diva. To be honest, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've Chris all managed to miss that it was Nigel's. It was Nigel's birthday. That was so, uh, Richard. Yes. Richard on the WhatsApp has volunteered to sing "Happy Birthday." With candle, holding candle. Where do you put the mute button on? Hang on. <laughs> Let's kick him, kick him off the call. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, the power. I'm going to record one and send it to him via yeah. WhatsApp. And I'm going to make, make sure he plays on loop. WhatsApp you know those, those YouTube videos, like nine hours of uh, William Shatner screaming car. <laughs> it's going to be like that. It's going to be 10 hours of Richard Tubb singing happy birthday to Nigel Moore. Very good. That's, that puts the nail in the coffin for WhatsApp on my phone. It's being deleted as you <laughs> Before it can even hit my phone. Uh, what else have we got? Ben Schneider, hey Ben, is saying, is going after a vertical niche crucial to growing your business as an MSP? Yes and no. Oh, That's the easy way to that one. Oh. Yes and no. I was out for dinner with uh, with Ben last night and, uh, and the network group. So hello to everybody from the network group who's just crawled out of their hotel beds <laughs> and uh, can't do anything else other than watch us uh, live. So uh but hello, Ben. Good to catch up with you. Yeah, I, I would say um, from the point of verticals, like it tends to be like in the US and stuff, um, uh, verticals tend to be much more prevalent, don't they, for managed service providers? And I think that's that tends to be because of the geography and, and stuff. Less so in the UK. However, when it comes to verticals, it doesn't just have to be um, the, the um, industry that you work with, so just professional services or whatever. Uh, verticals can also be the type of client you work with in terms of what are their attitudes, you know? So do you work with young dynamic companies or are you only going to target companies that uh, are high growth companies or whatever? So uh, that's another way to look at the verticals question. Yeah, the the answer is really in the numbers as well. When you like, when you say, is it crucial to running an MSP? The answer is simply no, because there are tens of thousands of highly successful MSPs out in the world that don't focus on a vertical. Uh, and so, so you do not have to focus on a vertical to, to run a successful MSP. It does have pros focusing on them, but it also does have cons as well. I know that there was a number of MSPs that I've heard of that dealt with like the hospitality space as their vertical when COVID hit and they got hammered, absolutely hammered. But then there's other MSPs that, um, that, operating like dentistry or whatever it is, although dentistry is probably a bad one because that's such a, a hard vertical to look after. But but MSPs that have focused on a vertical very, very, very intently and become known as the authority in that vertical, which means that their lead flow is like through the roof. They've got leads getting poured at them left, right and center because they've they've become known in their industry or in that industry as the players that do it really, really well for lawyers or accountants or whatever it happens to be. And so there, there is absolute pros and absolute cons for each. There is no right or wrong answer. The answer comes down to you and your business and what makes sense for you. One of the things that you do need to keep in place if you are going to go down the vertical specialization route is just take into account macroeconomical things in there, such as, um, like, as one of you mentioned before, Pete, I think you mentioned recessions um, coming up. What you don't want to go into and pick a vertical that's, that, and just go with just one vertical that is prone to being wiped out during recessions because you're going to get wiped out during a recession. And so um, one of the the ones that like the, the this is a, a horrible, or sorry, it's a, probably a, an exaggerated example to use, but to help hedge your bets if you're going after verticals and you don't want them to be uh, held to ransom via recessionary periods is you might go after one vertical that does really, really well when the economy is going well, like luxury goods or golf cars or whatever it happens to be. They're the things that just sell like crazy during when, when the economies are going hellfire. But then you also might deal with insolvency companies that, that go hellfire and gangbusters during times of recession. And that then evens out. So when these guys are doing awesome, you're making money from these guys. When these guys are doing awesome, you're making money and you hedge your bets. Don't, um, don't put all your eggs in one basket unless – You've got some sort of like you've got a way to de-risk that in some way, shape, or form um, via either having a few verticals that you look after or, or something else in there. Uh, but what I will say is, um, vertical special or verticals make far more sense when you're doing your marketing more than anything else. So, so sure you can get good at looking after a vertical in terms of their their line of business apps and and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But when you're doing your marketing, is really where it makes sense because you can target your marketing to. The, the owner of a law firm. And when you're targeting marketing towards the owner of a law firm or a partner in a law firm, you're talking exactly to their very specific pain points in language that they can understand. And they're going to pipe up and look at that and read that a whole lot more than if they were reading a, a, a very generic uh, advertising piece of material out there. So so the answer for me is yes and no. 
pros and cons of each. Um, to me, most MSPs would do well to focus on most verticals out there and specialize in, in maybe two or three or four. Um, but again, it's, it's very specific to your own situation and your own needs as to, to how that plays out. I don't know if you guys have got some more thoughts on that. You want to add? I, I think it's the, the very, very similar to skilling up your techie staff. Like, would you really niche down your techie staff to being experts on SharePoint or one particular product, like having an exchange expert? Yes, it's good, yes. but you still need some general knowledge about everything else as well. So I think that still applies to looking for clients. Agreed. Yeah, I was going to say the, the um, flip side of the coin, Nigel, to what you were talking about, the um, uh, going after a vertical and making sure your marketing is advertised towards a specific sort of avatar or whatever. Uh, many MSPs say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly focus on a vertical because I'm going to miss out on all of these other clients that are in the local yeah. area or, or they yeah. can work with. The reality couldn't be further from the truth. What happens when you get really specific about your marketing, you attract more of the, the right type of people because you stand out from the crowd. But interestingly, all of the people who are not you're not specifically targeting to will go, in my experience anyway, they will say, hey, look, I know this is not exactly what you do, but, but would you work with us? And that's been my experience again and again. And I think it's because you demonstrate the high level of knowledge and expertise in a specific area. And what people are looking for is those, that expertise again and again. There's, a, um, there's this saying in like the YouTube world of niche down to blow up. Yeah, and, um, that, yeah, that's very similar because like you, you obviously niche down to a topic and you do blow up you know, the, the views and channels and things. But I still get emails every day saying like, can you review our food mix? So we'd love to make a video <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Should we pick up? Um, Nick's got some good Nick's questions. Nick's got a couple of uh, questions here. Scott, yeah. yeah. I don't know if Scott, if you had a chance to read through it or join to uh, kind of yeah, yeah, summarize yeah. it for you. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, let me summarize. So next question is following up from the, the chat we had the other week about buying another MSP. Um, okay, so he was saying essentially that when, when we had my breakdown in my spreadsheet uh, of all the things, we had essentially sales and then we mm. had cost of goods sold, COGS. And, and so you would take one from the other and come out with your kind of gross profit. And then we would apply multipliers against each of those line items. And then in, in my workings, you'll see that we then have staff salaries are kind of below that line. So all the multiplication happens up here to give us our kind of enterprise value. And then we subtract costs, business costs. Um, he's had a conversation with someone and, and is basically saying, look, they would argue that cost of goods sold actually should include staff effort. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yes and no. I guess it, it, it can depend. There are different ways to look at this. Um, I've always seen it. And I say, I, 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 it almost sounds like a humble brag. I'm only going on my experience of 17 M&A activities in, in the MSP space. It, it sounds like a humble brag, but I've, I've only ever seen it done this way, where cost of goods sold is essentially, you know, your sale item to your customer, your actual materials rather than your staff time and effort, unless it was outsourced, unless it was consultancy or external or whatever, in which case those, you know, costs would come out of that sale <coughs> line at the top cost of goods sold and then everything else salaries pensions bonuses all that stuff is below the line and the reason we do that is we we get the multipliers up at the top and we take out the cost of sale and we have a very good enterprise value those costs at the bottom well we might choose to remove those costs when we when we consolidate the businesses we might shorten down some of those teams and it gives us a truer view of what is actually happening at the top in terms of sales and cost of goods sold, because we might have a team that already delivers those services. And so I don't need these costs. What I need to know is what's the real margin staff aside in these service items. If I can deliver the same with less staff or with my own staff, and I don't need to bring in this team of the business that I'm acquiring, I can see the raw profit. Um, and the same is true when you're trying to sell your MSP. You want to equate that same value across as well. Look, you might close my offices, get rid of half of my team. You know, you might consolidate those costs. So you, I need to be able to show you what is the value in these services at the top. So I hope that makes sense, Nick. Yeah. Um, are multipliers on things like hardware flexible? So yes, um, hardware and professional services typically are one times. Okay, it's it's a one-off thing. And so the, the predictability is very low of it happening again. But if you have a repeat 
relationship with a client or on hardware or you have hardware refresh cycles baked into the contract, then yes, you can argue potentially for those things to come up to maybe a two times multiplier, um, but they're not going to go much beyond two. Let's be honest. It's It's got to fall into one of those other buckets that is much more interesting, like cybersecurity or managed IT services. Those are the things where the heavier multipliers come in. Licenses, uh, yes, you know, you might argue for two times on licenses, especially now with longer contract terms, but it's it's one to two times. It's not it's not a huge dial that you're turning there. I would, if you are thinking about um, enterprise value and, and sales or purchases, I'd be looking at your managed services. And as we talked about building that security operation center relationship, the cybersecurity services side of your business. And even if you don't deliver it direct directly, cool, you've got a sale item and you've got a cost of goods sold because you're outsourcing that, but you've got a really healthy multiplier against those line items now as well. And that will bring the overall blended value for your business higher. So you'll get a higher multiple overall. Mm-hmm. To your uh, that first point in there, and Nick's one as well. What I'm, what I've, yeah. I've seen out in the the marketplace as well is that most MSPs have their salaries below the line, like you mentioned, Scott, purely because it's hard to actually get them above the line in most of the tools that they use out there. Like if, when you, if you're not using one of the main PSA tools like Connectwise or Autotask or one of those ones that can manage um, costs against agreements really well, then typically most MSPs are just bundling all of their staff into one line item and one salaries account on their PNL. Preferably, like if, if the bigger you go, the more you need to move away from that and move across to what you're talking about, Nick, where you actually are bringing all of your staff that deliver that particular product inside that product's cost of goods in there. But it takes time. And for most smaller, nimble MSPs, it doesn't make a lot of sense just yet until you get to a certain size where you go, okay, now we need to put that time, effort, and energy into setting up our PSA tool the right way or doing some manual journaling each month or whatever it happens to be to go and get all those costs moved above the line where they they really truly should be in the traditional sense of gap-based accounting, but most businesses don't. And my, my MSP, we didn't have it there for 95% of our journey until probably the last six to 12 months when we finally put the time and effort and energy in to get it showing up properly as part of cost of goods of our things. And that's when we were really, actually it was probably the last 18 months of our business because then we we really were tracking our, our, um, our margins really accurately in there with knowing that our engineers that were delivering that service were also part of that cost of goods in there. But it's it's hard to get to that point with the tool sets that are out there at the moment, um, depending on we, your side. We did, with the, with the larger acquisitions, we would break down the salary cross by team yeah, um, to make life easier at that stage. So we still wouldn't, because at, at that scale, when it was like 100 and 200 people, yeah, yeah. you couldn't get it baked into cost of goods sold. It was just, it was too difficult. So we would still consider it below the line, but then what we would do is go ahead and get department manually costs. Manually do it and Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's it's heavy lifting, but then usually at that stage, there's a whole finance team of like Correct. ten people. Yeah. Now throw it on into a spreadsheet <laughs> and massage it, and move go. it all up and down, and yeah, yeah, and, um, and that's yeah. why most most nimble MSPs will rely like internally when you're making your decisions, not in the MNA conversation, but most when you're making your own decisions about profit margins, you'll just be looking at your gross margin agreement reports out of your PSA and not looking at the P&L level for that stuff because it will be typically inaccurate on the P&L level but accurate at your gross margin agreement level pushed out of your PSA yeah. in there. Uh, but as Nick says, generally I want to yeah. I want to know the actual cost of delivering the service 100%, but if I'm yeah. selling I want the bigger gross margin number which is yeah. what everybody does in there and that's why <laughs> yeah, that will still hang below the line in there when it really realistically shouldn't over time. But yeah, you do. Nick, if, you, if you're exactly interested right. in um Nick, if you're interested in drilling down into some of the figures to a, to an incredible uh, level, uh, check out Service Leadership uh, yeah, Index yeah. from Paul Dickel. Um, so I was sharing with some of the, um, I was going to say HTG, but some of the ConnectWise Evolve members yesterday have just done their uh, latest round of Service Leadership. We could talk about this a long time, but yeah, I did an interview with Paul Dippel if you want to find out more about that service. But Nick, that might be one to, to look Paul at. Paul is really the master of this stuff, the maestro of this stuff. Paul's stuff dives into that so darn deep. And he, he's got an entire chart of accounts, um, PDF somewhere that you can go and hunt down that goes very deep into every single line item in there and exactly where it should be in your chart. Those are the normalized service provider chart of accounts. And um, it's it's awesome if you love diving into that stuff, Nick, and it might help get you give you some ideas in there. I've just put a link to the podcast interview, Nige. Maybe share that with oh, Nick on the, um, how do we, on the chat. I think I can copy and paste it across there. Yeah. Nick, you should be able to see that in one of the things. I think that shows up <laughs> on, on – um, Sorry, I just saw a comment that came in. It made me laugh out loud. I'm not going <laughs> to refer to it. Jorgen tonight, you were on fire this week. <laughs> cool, cool. Should we cover off um, Simon's question? 
What was that? Sorry, Pete, was that Simon you mentioned then? Simon's question, yeah. Of all the security areas to look after for your clients, which would you say is the most important area to hit first? I'm going to be a smart ass and say all of them. (laughs) (laughs) um, And it's a bad way of saying what I really want to say, and that is that there is no one answer to that. I've I've heard a number of people say, oh, what should I focus on first? And you, you can't answer with just one because security is not just one layer or one, one tool. It's a multitude and you can't offer security without offering a multitude of things in there. And so, so I, don't think, I don't think the question is the right question to be asking in there really. I think it's um, what, what sort of stack – or actually maybe because you, you've said it, the areas, then you're probably right. It is areas. I was – sorry, I read it as of all the security areas. Oh, you know, sorry. Let me rewind that. Um, you are saying what is the most important area to hit first. And I personally don't think it's one area that you should hit is my answer to that is that there's a bunch of things that you really need to hit. And depending on what what cyber framework or cybersecurity framework you're going to align your business with, if you're going to choose to align with one, whether it's NIST or CIS frameworks or Cyber Essentials or the Essential 8 or whatever it is, they will give you at least your baseline of security areas that you should be addressing as your base layer that you, you're trying to work on. And then you start stacking things on top of that as and when needed. But um, I'm sure you guys have probably got some deeper deeper areas that you want to go into with that one. I screwed up the beginning of answering that one because I, I read it wrong. <laughs> I would definitely um, go to the framework. I'm going to go basics in, in terms of like there's there's so much that we know that businesses are taking risks on, right? And and there's all the boring stats like, oh look, ninety nine percent of attacks happen because of phishing attacks and because of um, you know bad passwords. So like it's it's basics. Can you can you get out to your clients to have um, multi factor authentication? Can you get yeah. anti phishing protection deployed? Can you get end user cybersecurity awareness in your good, better, yeah. best stack? Yeah, yeah. Some kind of tooling to help teach at least in some way the end users. Just get those basics covered because that is going to stop a huge amount of things that are happening. But then as you start to go further on, obviously we want to make sure that like endpoints are secured. Um, there used to be a whole focus around making sure the network and the firewall was secured. I less care about that now, although still to a certain extent, than I do around making sure all the endpoints and the users are protected. Because as, you, as you're trying to build that, and there is no one definition, but zero trust, I don't really care where the user is with their device. They have to be secure in their identity and the device that they're using. So how do I bubble that up? And then I almost don't care what network they sit on. If we have a corporate network, cool, of course, we're going to make the steps that look after the Wi-Fi and the firewall and and certificates and all that kind of stuff. But outside of that, end-user training is really important. Phishing protection is important. And then if all of that's bundled up, now I'm thinking about data loss protection services and making sure that stuff doesn't leak intentionally or accidentally outside of the organization. I want to manage devices, whether they're corporate owned or whether they're personal devices. I want to manage the data on those devices. I want to look after that. And then once I've done all of that and it's all working, I want something that's watching that 24 hours a day that is highlighting, hey, something's changed. Hey, there's been an incident. Hey, this looks weird. And that might be uh, an automation. It might be a product like Alien Vault, or it might be a SOC service with someone who has the ability to go, I know what that is, and boy, we're going to stop it before anything happens. And so for me, it's those kind of basics. If those are all in your stack, I think you're doing pretty well when it comes to like a cybersecurity solution. If uh, And the one basic I missed out of that, and the real basics as well, is password managers for your clients so that they are all using password managers and they're not writing them down or anything or doing anything dumb with passwords. If we've kind of got all of that in the stack, I'm feeling comfortable, not secure, but I'm feeling comfortable. Now I'd also like us to have like the external partnership with somebody who's doing like those cyber security essentials or essential eight, um, you know, audits, and they are externally verifying that, yeah, do you know what? Everything's set up. This client is safe. They've got the right stuff in place. Um, Simon's saying, yeah, they work to cyber essentials. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One, I would get them to plus. Awesome. Okay, don't don't just sit on essentials. Get them to plus. Okay, it's not that big a leap, um, but that gives me the comfort factor of knowing, like, if something happens to one of our clients, it's we did the best we could of getting everything laid out and ready and, and equipping them with the right tools and having someone watching it for us. I think that's that's where mine goes when when I think about that. Let's not forget the two things that should be in place before any of all this stuff goes in place as well as a really solid backup system that's that's make sure that it's yeah. immutable in some way, yeah. shape, or form or air-gapped as well as having the cyber insurance in place as well so that all of those things should then stack on top of that. And those two things to me are the, the first. Backup, 
in place that's immutable in some way, shape or form or air gapped from network or whatever it happens to be, um, as well as, as cyber protection. So that if any one of those things or they figure out their way through anything in there, um, you've got at least something to, to save some sort of reputation or business or whatever it happens to be that you've got there. I think just to add to kind of what everyone else has already said in terms of, yeah, agree with everything. My kind of where to get started is have that minimum base level that you have all your clients have. If your clients won't take you up on the base level, you don't want to work with them. Yeah, yeah. They're going to get caught. They're going to get hit, hacked or fished. You're going going to be blamed. Yeah, And you're going to get blamed. So have that, whatever the level that you feel that you're comfortable to have. So whether that entry level stack is your, you know, your, your cybersecurity awareness training, your fish protection, your spam filters, whatever it's going to be, have that base layer, price it up, bundle up into your you know, 20 or 10, 10 bucks per user per month, whatever it's going to be. That is the basic thing. If anybody speaks to you, they have to take that service or you can't do anything else with them. And that, that's the only thing I'd add to that discussion, I think, really, because and, and that will quite quickly highlight yeah. whether people are actually interested in exactly. protecting themselves and actually investing in their IT versus just mm-hmm. one kind of, you come in, fix the shit, and then get on with the other things. Yep. And Simon says that he does what he mentioned because he, he works to the Cyber Essentials framework, so his, his baseline is probably going to be built pretty strongly around that, which is an yeah. awesome place to start from. Then you stack everything on top. Um, right, what else have we got in here? Something about my... Alex- Sorry, you go. Alex Harvey, what is the best oh, advice yeah. on taking on your first hire? So again, again on your first hire, but more in terms of have the money Ooh. for them already or make the investment to free up time to get the money. The button I just Ooh, found. <laughs> no, I just found a new button. <laughs> We're almost at the end of the live stream. We just found the button to go to question. <laughs> only, only six months into this thing and I've just found the button. <laughs> so yes, when you're hiring someone for the first time, have you? do you have the money for them already? Yeah. Or do you make up the investment to to basically, yeah, do you, do you kind of free up the time to then get the money to go and go out and get the money? I, I think for me, there's um, when you kind of follow the profit first thing, which is where you're kind of starting to put money in separate pots, that's quite a good way to A, figure out if you can afford them before you actually go and hire somebody because you can be putting their salary away every single month, um, ready into a savings pot somewhere. By doing that, you'll know if your business can still operate whilst having, you know, whilst technically paying somebody. And then, hey, when you do actually hire somebody, you've got a pot there that's already got maybe six months' worth of salary sat there to pay them. So that can be a really good way to start. But I remember over the years, there were definitely some hires we did where we, were, we weren't too sure if we could afford to pay for them. But we were like, <laughs> well, I think if we bring you on board, then, I mean, shit's going to hit the fan. You're going to have to go out and get some business to pay for them. So um, there can be good things and bad things about you know, those kind we, of hires. We did exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. It's like scarcity breeds innovation, doesn't it? And it's like if you need to bring on new clients, we did the same thing. But it's all down to personal attitude towards risk, isn't it? And your risk. Yeah, uh, I always exactly. liked those limitations because it forced me to go out and uh, win new business. And um, if you if you're not going to make payroll unless you land a new client, that soon gives you a kick up the backside <laughs> to do your sales process. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It's completely about your risk tolerance out there. What else have we got in here? Um, let me hide that one now that I know where there's the button. Um, <laughs> so it's a good question from Steve there, I think. Yeah, this one here. Um, uh, it doesn't show the full question on the screen, but and I can't read it unless I'm uh, – hang on. Right. Having, having, watched, having watched Nigel's right, right fit, fit call, do you all follow a similar principle before engaging with a prospect, and do you think that type of filtering can be done by a non-techie? Good question. Yes. He's not asking me on this one. He's asking you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I can sit back, relax. I would say yes. Yeah. So guys- going back to something we, we mentioned earlier, and the you know the trip wires for employees, we we employ yeah. something similar, um, you know, um, basically around the same sort of concepts as Nigel's right fit call, which is, um, are these people going to be a good fit for us? Yeah, correct uh, or not? And if if they're not going to be a good fit for us, so in answer to Steve's question, there can it be done by a non techie? Absolutely. So yeah. when people engage, yeah. um, get in touch to work with me. Um, it might be Karina or Jenks in my team who run them through a series of questions. And um, one of the biggest red flags is if they are not interested in answering the questions and they say, can we just jump on a call? We can jump on a call, jump on a call. Not going to be a good fit for us. So, yeah. yeah. It can absolutely be run by a non-techie, preferably so if you, your business is at a size that can support it. Because um, it, it, like typically like an account manager person or a BDR or BDM or, or you, depending on the size of your business, uh, are all good candidates of people running that particular call. 
And um, and because it's a business question call, you don't really ask many technical questions on that thing. And all of the technical questions that are asked on a call like that um, are ones that, that the person receiving the answer doesn't need to know anything deeper about it. They, they're just kind of making sure that, as, as Richard said, Ed, you're going to be a good fit for them and they're going to be a good fit for you. And it also positions you. Like it's a really good positioning tool in setting up the relationship dynamic right from the very beginning. Um, Scott's put his hand up. Hang on. Yeah, because my only add to that is as long as that person isn't incentivized for that customer to sure. join and yeah, start yeah. spending yeah, yeah. money. Because right. um, yeah. the amount of customers that we picked up uh, in previous business you because the have. salesperson didn't know anything and was only looking at the dollar-dollar bills, y'all, um, and mm -hmm. didn't care that the customer was a pain in the ass because they weren't going to have to deal with them, that they'd sold them a line on the services that we didn't really do and they were kind of outside yeah, the scope, yeah. but just kept saying yes, 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 yeah. yes. Yeah, um, yeah. As long as that person isn't incentivized to bring on the client, um, then yes, I think you definitely can have conversations with non-techie people mm -hmm. with the client and just get that right feel, fit. Are we going to work well together? So if it was more, I, I don't know who you've got making those, you know, those calls, those right fit calls, if it's not... You know, in an agile MSP, if it's not like the kind of player manager, if it's not a techie, um, and if it's not someone who's incentivized in the sales process, then who is doing those calls? I guess is my question. But I, you I know, always as think long of it as like the account managers, so the, yeah, the, the guys manager. that are there to like deliver the services to existing clients, yeah. internal account managers yeah, yeah. that aren't incentivized, yeah. they're not paid on commission. But, um, yep. but they, they have an understanding of what a client looks like. I think that's pretty Sometimes the receptionist can do it really well as well. I've seen receptionists mm -hmm. do it really well. Where they know enough about the IT company to know what it does and whatever. Yep. And, and it's not a technical call. Steve said it, he asked it in case the client takes you down a tech rabbit hole. And it just requires right. someone to like, – the answer to that, um, even if you're a technical person on one of those calls, is you never want to answer technical questions on those calls because it's not a consulting call. You don't want to be giving out advice without knowing about their system. And the, the easy way to answer any technical question is, oh, that's a great question. One of our team would no doubt be able to help you out with that or that's something that we can book in a call and run through that particular thing with you. But that's not a, a question for this particular call because we're going to get stuck down a rabbit hole here. Um, and that just pushes you away from answering any technical question on that call. You're, you're right then. You're talking about a sales qualification call. You don't want to get stuck in technical weeds ever on a call like that. You want to – sometimes you might have an opportunity to show that you've got technical chops by – they might ask you a technical question. If you are technical, you can then say, oh, yeah, that's because of Azure AD does X, Y, and Z. We can certainly jump on a call and dive deeper into that particular thing, but that's not this call. Right now we've got 15 minutes just to work out whether we're going to be a good fit between each other. And then if we are, if we think that we're going to be able to help you out, then we can dive into getting you up and running and we'll dive – deep into that one with you and we'll assign people or we'll do whatever it takes to answer that question for you. But right now, let's just get through this part of the call. We had that with um, when you go on site to, to like meet the client for the first time as well. Try not to do anything yeah. to, to the, the, the tech that's on site because you always have this like, oh, I'm, I, you know, I can fix that, but I don't want to because I don't know about the bigger I picture. Network, I don't want to make yeah. a change yeah. that might impact yeah, yeah. things. Exactly yeah, just right. being aware of it. Always just lean on that one. I don't know your network, your business, your anything enough yet to be able to give you the right advice. We need to understand that. And if anyone does ever jump on, and I would often say, if anyone does ever jump on a call with you and is happy to go diving straight deep into this stuff and giving you advice straight away, run for the hills because they're not doing enough discovery to understand your business properly in there. And, um, and that, that, again, positions you as someone that's taken things the right way. And it will attract, scare off the people that just want the quick answer. And they're, not, they're the clients that you don't want to deal with anyway. As Richard said before, it kind of weeds out those, those people that are just hunting for an answer and, and want things really quick. Um, so hopefully that helps you, Steve, answer that one. Um, what else have we got in here? Have we missed a few others? Someone asked about Twitter and um, Elon buying it and what we think about that. Um, he technically hasn't bought it just yet. I think the process is going to be a six to 12 month process before he, he actually is able to purchase it, but um, it's certainly underway. And, um, I'm not, the, I'm not smart enough to be able to comment on that thing. So, um, it's certainly a, a crazy big move. That's for sure. What else have we got? In here? Sayable by the next. Cause <laughs> Chris says, I'm going to share this to my 33,000 followers here. Thank you guys. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. That sounds awesome. Um, appreciate it. And Richard is streaming from the shadow realm. <laughs> I am indeed. I am in the, the Vermont Apart Hotel in uh, Newcastle upon Tyne City Centre. I've been here all week doing meetings, and I was with the Tetra uh, Tuesday night uh, for a meal with uh, the guys from Pax State, and then I was with Network Group yesterday. So I've had a good week. But yeah, this is the the best I can do in the environment given. I'm afraid. So I will be back in the studio next week. 
Right. Is, is that the hotel I stayed in when I was up there visiting you? Opposite the train station somewhere? It's No, no, that's a different one. Okay. So. okay. What they wouldn't let us go back to there. Sorry? They won't? I got they wouldn't let us go back to there. We're on, we're on the ban list now. So, yeah. I got us kicked out for good. Um, Simon says, we have created a CEC framework, Cyber Essentials compliant. Our stack starts with cyber insurance all the way through to CE+. Plus. 100% agree. That's awesome, Simon. It sounds like you got, you're doing it probably better than, than the vast majority of MSPs out there already, which is awesome. So well done. Um, are we missing any questions in here? I think that's it. That's I think it. we've got them all. We're five minutes over. I just saw the time. <laughs> um, well, we've got the professional wrap-up back as well. I tried last we week did. and nearly ended up yeah. telling everyone to go on oh, to. That was uh, horrific. You did so well with it, Scott, though. I think, I think you got 90% through and just flubbed the last 10%. It was awesome. This is yeah, why Pete yeah. Madison gets paid the big bucks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't. Uh, I won't let anyone refer them over to Grinder or whichever one I was trying to get people to get to. Last week, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, Pete, I'll, I'll let you do the magic. <laughs> right. Cool. Thank you, as always. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone, in the comments because there's been so many comments this time. I think the um, engagement's getting a lot better each each kind of episode we go on. So, um, uh, thank you. Keep the comments coming. Keep the questions coming. Um, don't forget, of course, to subscribe down below the wrong side, that way, that down way. below Scott's, and um, follow us on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, um, Stitcher. That's probably the one you were going for last week, I think, Scott. And all the usual Apple platforms and those kind of things. And uh, we'll be here, I think, the same time, same place next week. Are we, we're trying to figure out the time differences at the moment, aren't we? There might be a change in time. We're going to talk about it afterwards, so, but we'll, we'll let people know. Changing. But with that said, we'll see you in the next episode of some form in some date in the future. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Everyone. I'm going to click the end button and I'll chat to you all soon. Bye for now.